we looked at what we think this is costing the U.S. economy, this, this wealth gap between Black Americans and white Americans. And our analysis suggested that the dampening effect is about $1.5 trillion of annual GDP from having this long, sustained wealth gap. That's a massive amount of economic output that we are choosing to forego by failing to invest in communities that have all sorts of potential, but who have not received adequate investment historically. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Smith, Vice Chairman here at BMO Harris, and welcome to our podcast discussion. Today, we'll be talking about our theme, Empowering Inclusive Economic Recovery. And uh, we'll be looking at specifically how the public and private sector can work together in partnership to be purpose-driven in helping to promote an inclusive economic recovery. Our first guest includes Shelley Stewart, who is a partner at McKinsey & Company and a leader within the firm's private equity and principal investors practice, which serves a range of clients on marketing and sales topics. In addition to his client work, Shelley leads McKinsey's highly regarded research focused on black economic mobility in the United States. We're also pleased to have with us today, Andrea Zopp, who is a managing partner at Cleveland Avenue, a privately held Chicago venture capital firm focused on the food and beverage industry. Andrea joined Cleveland Avenue at the beginning of the year, and her illustrious career includes high-profile leadership roles in both the public and private sector. In 2017, Andy was appointed by then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel as CEO of World Business Chicago, which is Chicago's public-private economic development agency. Prior to that, Andy served as Deputy Mayor of Chicago, as well as the former CEO and President of the Chicago Urban League. And she's been a trailblazing corporate leader, having served as General Counsel of Exelon and Sears, as well as Deputy GC at Sara Lee. As we have just concluded Black History Month, our nation is still at a critical crossroad as it relates to the fight and the battle against COVID-19 and the disparate impact that it's had on the Black and Brown community. We've also seen the economic downturn and issues around racial and social unrest. So I'm really encouraged today uh, to have both uh, Shelley and Andy here for our discussion because both of you are in the midst of leading incredible work to advance racial equity. Shelley, can you talk to us about the work that you're leading at McKinsey as part of the Institute for Black Economic Mobility? Absolutely. And thank you so much, Eric, for, uh, for having me. So we've been doing this research for a few years now, but building on decade uh, or so of work on topics of diversity and inclusion. And as we went through this this moment last year with respect to COVID-19 and the disproportionate impact on Black Americans, as well as the broader social justice movement, we we really thought it was time to, to formalize our efforts around racial equity 
beyond the four walls of corporations. And so much of our work and much of the discussion in the private sector, at least, had traditionally been around representation and inclusion inside of companies. And that's critically important. And we continue to do research and to convene and discuss uh, that topic and try to encourage our, our own firm and others to act. But, but there's a bigger opportunity to really lift the floor, as, as I like to call it, with respect to Black Americans and their economic outcomes. If you, if you just take as a starting point that the typical Black person bo- who is born poor, so born in the, in the lowest income bucket, has only about a 25% chance of reaching the middle class. Uh, that, that's, that's our starting point for why we need to act urgently. Uh, because if that broad swath of the population is not participating uh, in, in the American dream, then we're missing out on both opportunity for individual, so human impact, but there's also economic implications for the broader economy. And so our work is really focused on a cross-sector look at what are the different outcomes across one's life journey, starting with birth and through to retirement, that where, this dis, where these disproportionate outcomes materialize? And what are the determinants of those outcomes? So things like education, things like workforce participation, and really trying to understand what the big levers are to help address this mobility issue. And so our research is very focused on that. And beyond the research, we're focused on convening stakeholders across sectors to discuss and to really try to catalyze for action uh, to help address these different opportunity areas and also building assets and tools that help enable uh, institutions like like BMO and others to, to help do their part in addressing this mobility challenge. That's terrific. And I look forward to diving into some of the research and work that you're leading uh, there at McKinsey, Shelley. Andy, I'm going to turn to you and, and first congratulations on your recent move to uh, Cleveland Avenue. But can you talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing there to support racial equity? Absolutely. And also, Eric, thanks so much for having me with you today. So I came to Cleveland Avenue to lead an initiative that uh, we are uh, developing there to uh, under the uh, guidance and uh, with the uh, support and of our CEO, Don Thompson, and his wife, Liz Thompson, who've been working in, as you know, in racial equity for a long time. I'm leading an initiative to invest in Black and Latinx and women-owned entrepreneurs with a particular focus on the south and west sides of Chicago. Now, our view is, you know, I think Shelley's absolutely right. There are a lot of uh, determinants to mobility and barriers to mobility, and I think there are a lot of levers we can pull. We believe one of those critical levers is growing Black-owned and minority-owned businesses, particularly doing that um, with them at the community level. Um, so that they can uh, not only create jobs and economic wealth uh, for their owners, but that those dollars will have a much higher likelihood of staying uh, in the communities uh, and staying in the neighborhoods. And so we think that's a critically important part of this addressing this mobility issue that uh, and this racial wealth gap that uh, Shelley is talking about. And we know that um, minority-led founders and women-led founders have a very disproportionate access to capital. Um, something like about 80% of those founders uh, do not have their capital needs met compared to well under 
um, 50% of white-led, majority-led companies. So there's a huge gap there. We're trying to address that gap and also provide additional resources for our businesses so that they're well-positioned to grow. We are really focused not on a philanthropic effort, but really on a business effort to grow strong, sustainable growth engines uh, for economic uh, advancing economic opportunity, particularly on the south and west sides of the city. Thanks, Andy. This is uh, really exciting because I, I feel like we truly have uh, two uh, incredible game changers here uh, with us for our discussion. So, Shelly, I'm going to come back to you and, and start uh, with a little bit uh, around the research that you've uh, been focused on. You actually published a report last week that uh, hopefully our listeners will check out. Uh, it was entitled America 2021, The Opportunity to Advance Racial Equity. And I was immediately struck by sort of the opening lines, which read as follows. It said, repairing the frayed social fabric in the United States is one of the most pressing issues of our time. It's not a new problem, but if we don't address the underlying issues preventing us from achieving equitable growth and inclusion, the economic and social divisions that drove the civil unrest following the murder of George Floyd will only become worse. Shelley, can you set the stage for our discussion today by describing what you see as the economic inequities that were unmasked over the past year as a result of the COVID-19 crisis? Back in April of 2020, we, we put out a piece called COVID-19, Investing in Black Lives and Livelihoods. And the reason that we wrote that piece back in April was because it became immediate apparent if you look back at history whether it's natural disasters or the Great Recession, that these, these big exogenous events will disproportionately impact those with less resources, and in particular, those in minority communities. And so I think this has been eye-opening for many, which, which I think has accelerated the dialogue, but, but it was very noble, right? So we actually, uh, in that initial work, we, we looked at factors that would be, that would suggest mass disruption from, from a pandemic, like more disruption than normal. So what, what is the level of poverty in a given place? What's the housing density situation? What's the incidence of comorbid conditions? And when we, when we put all that into the blender, we identified the fact that Black Americans were two times more likely to live in the 10% of counties that would be hit worse if and when the pandemic got there. And so I, I say all that to say, not, not that we had a crystal ball at McKinsey, but just that we look, based on history, we knew exactly what would happen. And the, the fragility, whether it relates to health outcomes, so we're seeing disproportionate you know, death rates from COVID-19, which has been widely reported, and we're also seeing disproportionate impacts on Black-owned businesses and Black employment. Again, all these things were very, very knowable at the outset of this crisis. And so what, what, what I'm really hoping is that we recognize that now is the time, as we hopefully go into a new normal, to shore up the economic wherewithal in these communities so that we are not as vulnerable when the next big crisis hits. And, and, and it would be a lost opportunity if 10 years from now, whether it's a pandemic, I hope not, a natural disaster or something else, if we're saying, wow, 
I can't believe this disproportionately impacted this community because we know quite precisely what the implications will be. The implications are uh, pretty dire, particularly as it relates to uh, small businesses and minority uh, businesses. Since the start of COVID-19 and the crisis, the number of Black-owned businesses in the U.S. has declined from roughly 1.1 million to 640,000. And when surveyed, roughly 37% of Black-owned businesses expressed concerns that they won't be able to survive more than a year under the current restrictions versus 59% of white businesses. Shelley, I credit you because I think that was actually some of the research from McKinsey. As further acknowledgement, though, of the severity of this troubling situation, our own Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen commented uh, during a recent interview. She said that Black-owned businesses has suffered disproportionately when compared to white-owned businesses amid the pandemic. Black businesses were the first to close their small businesses. Blacks were the first to lose their jobs. And early data suggests that Blacks will be the last to be rehired when the economy opens up. Andy, how can the private sector help to address this alarming crisis? So, you know, I just first of all, I also want to echo what Shelley said. McKinsey and he and his team did the research to support this fact. But the truth is, had we stepped back to, to you know, just a minute, we would have known that this was going to happen. We were talking about health disparities, for example, well before the pandemic hit, right? The, the life uh, span, uh, Rush has been working on that uh, hospital here. So we knew none of this should be a surprise for anybody who works with, uh, who's worked in communities of color and working with uh, the barriers for black businesses. I think what really this showed is that we have to be intentional about activity actions to address the issue. Talking about it and saying this is a problem and hemming and hawing about it isn't really enough because when you are intentional, you can do something. So I think some of the things that the corporate community can do are first, think about uh, their own procurement in two ways, you know, high level, you know, and you know this, Eric, we've talked about this so many times, whether it's professional services and investing and lawyers and insurance brokers, but also, you know, taking some of their dollars and saying, I'm going to, their procurement dollars, I'm going to be committed to spending these dollars with locally owned entrepreneurs, or I have a line of business that can, that we can use vendors that we can build a relationship with over time to help grow that. The challenge is it takes time and it is outside of the typical norm sometimes of procurement processes. And so, but there's, so it's where you spend your dollars. Um, it's where you invest your dollars. Um, and you know this because you're leading um, the charge and BMO has been a huge uh, supporter of this, investing dollars at the community level, both with community organizations who are driving change, but also in developments. Um, that are happening. Much of the develop, neighborhood development work that uh, I worked on when I was uh, deputy mayor uh, that was success, that has been successful, is all about public-private partnerships. Uh, the government cannot do it alone. Uh, they need private partners. So, uh, And companies have money to invest in a variety of settings, and those funds are changing. But to think through where are you spending your investment? And then the third is, of course, hiring and how you're hiring. Not just, you know, thinking through entry level jobs, but thinking through career pathways, whether it's apprenticeships or internships 
or partnering with community colleges, intentionally saying we are going to uh, build a long-term relationship with a community college for a pipeline of talent that we know will be diverse. Um, you know, but I think the key focus here is there, it has to be, there has to be a high level of intentionality and there has to be somewhat incented um, to get to the outcome because standard practices typically will not address these barriers because these are barriers that have derived from systemic issues. You cannot just say, put a, level, a color on it that goes like, we're going to be focused on diversity and just assume that's going to happen. I, I love the, uh, the, the term intentionality uh, because I think in this moment in time, uh, we have to be moving beyond just making public statements, but actually putting practices in place that will drive results. And that means uh, for both the, the public and the private sector, and, and Andy, you laid out a really uh, terrific framework for the private sector. And, and I'm going to come back to that uh, in a moment, but I, I want to also maybe look a little bit at the change with the new uh, Biden-Harris administration. For instance, President Biden has passionately proclaimed uh, that as it relates to race relations, we're in a battle for the soul of our nation. Uh, and to bolster that position, racial equity is now part of the national agenda for the first time in American history. Shelley, your research is, is almost like a blueprint for how the Biden administration can think about addressing this. And, and I'd love to get your thoughts on how you see the public sector providing targeted outreach. I won't bleed into any specific policy recommendations because I'm not a policy expert. But what I what I will talk about is is the outcomes I think that need to that we need to be aspiring for if we're going to achieve racial equity, especially in the context of this recovery. First and foremost, it starts with the vaccine. Right? We need to get equitable access to vaccination and we need to be tracking that in real time to ensure that folks you know, have what they need to get back out safely into the economy. So it starts there. The second thing is, and, and I think Andy talked about this, is access to capital, right? The, the public sector plays a role in a variety of forms as it interacts with both the traditional and non-traditional financial services sector. We have to improve the access both for individuals, which shows up in the form of things like banking, uh, bank accounts and access to mortgages and the like. Uh, and then again, on the small business and medium business side, how do we ensure that entrepreneurs of, of color, minority entrepreneurs have access to uh, capital and credit as they try to grow and scale their businesses? The, the third thing I will say, which is maybe not as a direct a through line, but we've also got to be focused on improving K through 12 education in places where uh, minority folks live. The, the, the return on that investment is extremely high and those interventions today will have positive downstream implications beyond anything that we can do later on in life. And so I think across those three things, you've got the very near term is the vaccine, making sure that we're very focused on equitable access to financial services and products across individuals and businesses and focusing on bolstering education uh, and, and, and high quality education for all. That's great. And Andy, anything that you would add? 
Yeah. So I actually just, uh, I was literally just saying everything and there's a couple of things I want to build on just to give you, and this goes back to my point about intentionality, just to, so if you talk about equitable access to the vaccine, so vaccines first started coming out and I know I'm more familiar with the data for Chicago than I am for others, but the data, the disparate a- access data was, was horrific, right? It was like three to one majority population, white it's getting it and uh, blacks and Latinos not. The city then took some very drastic steps, very intentional, opened up sites in communities, started targeting zip codes, uh, and they've changed, they've shifted those numbers pretty dramatically. So the point is, you can't simply just say, we're going to do it. You have to be intentional. Same goes with access to capital. The PPP distribution, perfect example. Um, So we're going to have it. But uh, minority businesses that didn't have the relationships with the banks, didn't have the same kind of financials, their financials together, cut out. So the last round, you know, there's dollars going specifically target this next round, target in this next, the new uh, bill that's coming out. There's dollars targeted specifically to small businesses, minority-owned businesses, because they changed the ground ground rules, and that will make a difference. And then lastly, I, I just, you know, Shelley's absolutely right. We have to continue to address education. But what I want you to remember is that, that, so just to give you an example, in Chicago, we made very dramatic gains in our public education system. Those gains have been devastated by what's happened in the pandemic and students not being able to be in school. And so to Shelley's point, we don't just have to fix public education right now. We have to be focused on recovering what we lost by sending students home. And so just think it through. Think about students and uh, minority students and students who are lower income, didn't have the same access to computers and IT, didn't have the same kind of support groups or uh, groups that majority or better resource communities had. And they are falling behind, had fallen behind dramatically. So if we do not come back into the you know into schools and education, understanding that we have to be intentional in addressing that, we have we've lost years. And so it is his points are absolutely the right points, but my really just want to highlight for us that we can't we have to be really focused on addressing the barriers that exist in the policies and actions that we put in place. Otherwise we won't see the real change. Addressing the barriers is something that I I see as being really important. And you guys have described really a comprehensive way uh, to build a framework uh, to do just that. I think what we have seen, though, historically, is that there has been systemic racism in banking. And I think we have here at BMO, and I know at some of our other competitors, really started to, for the first time, acknowledge that and to take bold steps to try to address those inequities. We obviously um, have a mission here at BMO to boldly grow the good, and we recently launched our own BMO Empower initiative uh, to uh, provide a $5 billion five-year commitment here in the U.S. But having the opportunity to speak to some of our senior leaders right now, how would you guys uh, address sort of some of the opportunities in banking uh, to really start to address solutions for the equity gap that we see, that we've seen for far too long? What are some of the the opportunities that you see coming up, whether it's small business lending, LMI, mortgage lending, banking the unbanked? I'd love to get your thoughts. I'll start with you, Shelley. 
I think there is, it goes without saying there's, there's tremendous opportunity. If you, if you take a bank account as the most basic form of participation in financial services, which I, which I think most that fits the definition for most, the fact that somewhere around 60 and 65% of black Americans are on or under bank just really tells you how urgent the issue is. I think as you, as you think about uh, traditional banking services, I think there's an opportunity for large traditional firms to uh, leverage technology to get to customers that uh, otherwise they weren't able to access because maybe the cost structure didn't allow it to, to happen. So many folks who are, who are Black live in banking deserts. And you know, how do we think about financial technology and digital banking as a way of you know, in, in a way that's that's cost effective for the financial institution to serve customers they otherwise haven't been serving. That's one example. I think if you move to something like credit, I think institutions have an opportunity to re-examine the way they think about and evaluate what credit worthiness means and, 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 and leveraging technology and data for good to understand, you know, what, what does credit worthiness really mean and how can you assess it in ways that maybe don't reinforce things that are preventing credit in the first place, uh, and I think that there's a uh, a really big opportunity to to, to do that. Uh, I think on the investing side, for example, you're seeing with some of these new uh, stock purchasing platforms where you can do things digitally quickly and cheaply, you're actually seeing lots of interest from minority communities. McKinsey recently did a survey, and we found that uh, Black consumers were twice as likely over the last six months to actually sign up for some of those online digital apps where they can purchase stocks quickly and cheaply. And so the appetite is, is really there. And so I think there's a number of, of things that, uh, that, that traditional financial services firms can do. And I think, frankly, if they don't move into that opportunity, I suspect, and we're already seeing this, scrappy entrepreneurs will innovate and they will go after those market opportunities. And so someone is going to meet that demand where it is. And I think the question is, who is willing to invest now to go build it? Because the opportunity is beneficial on both sides, both the institutions and the individuals. Andy, what are your thoughts? So, Eric, what I would add to that is I think, you know, institutions, large institutions, you have a lot of policies and practices in place that came up because they were good. They made sense for the business. And, it, and it's hard to change those things you know, in, in smaller buckets. But what I would say is, is if you look at outcomes, if you say, we want to increase our investments, or, you know, our mortgage investments in these zip codes by this much over this period of time, you know, every business I've ever worked in, once you set a specific goal, will figure out a rational path for the business to get there. Too often, we don't, we simply say, well, we want to increase our lending with minorities, but we're not going to change the policies that we have in place that uh, assess whether or not, to Shelley's point, they're credit worthy. Well, it's the policies in place. But if you say, we're going to work on the assumption that in these zip codes, we can find X percentage of, of, of clients that are uh, that are customers that will be credit worthy. We just have to figure out how to make that happen. You will figure out how to make that happen um, in a way that will be ben- that would be uh, ultimately uh, 
financially feasible for the for the bank. And so um, it, it is it is this is again my point around intentionality. It's really about thinking about where do you want to be in a year or two years when it comes to equity. I mean, do you want to be? So do you want to increase um, your investments in in areas uh, that need that investment? And what do you have to do to do that? And the truth is, you don't have to undercut your business, but you will have to change how you do business. And making that happen in large institutions is challenging. And so I think you know your the fund that you the commitment that uh, BMO has made is a, a big step along the way. You have to act. You have to make that real now, um, and that's going to require changing practices that uh, you've had in place for a while, and and that came up as reasonable, rational business practices. You touched on something there, both of you, around the importance of thinking about outcomes, and we all have a clear objective to be able to serve our clients, uh, our communities, and to also uh, ensure that we are thinking about our shareholders and generating the types of returns that are very important. And so as I think about outcomes, I always think about what's the value proposition and whatever objective we're trying to achieve. And so Shelley, I'd love for you to share that value proposition by really describing what's the economic and societal benefits associated with helping to address the racial wealth gap. I think first and foremost, in my opinion, there is there is and remains a moral imperative uh, that I think should be quite compelling and moving to to most. Uh, if I you know if I then translate that to what it what it looks like for individuals, what I call the human impact, uh, we live in we live in a society where we value the fact that where you're born, right, the, the station that you're born into, does not dictate or should not dictate where you end up. Right, that is that is fundamental to the American dream. It's fundamental to the ethos. Unfortunately, that is not true for Black Americans. And and if you just if you just look at the data, and I, and I said the data point earlier, if you are born poor and you are Black, you have about a one in four chance of reaching the middle class. You know, knowing that, the stifling impact of that reality is suffocating. And so that 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 real that very real human impact, and it's a, it's a similar number for uh, Native Americans, uh, and then you see varying rates. It's closer to six and ten for Asian Americans. So there's there's great variability, but for some groups it is not working, and we have to address that uh, if we're going to maintain you know the, the social fabric. But if I take a step back from the individual and I think about the macro, we looked at what we think this is costing the U.S. economy, this, this wealth gap between Black Americans and white Americans. And our analysis suggested that the, the dampening effect is about $1.5 trillion of annual GDP from having this long, sustained wealth gap. That's a, that's a massive amount of economic output that we are choosing to forego by failing to invest in communities that have all sorts of potential, but who have not received adequate investment historically. And so this is not only about helping a subset of the population. It is about that, but it's also about what I'd call supercharging the broader economy through unleashing 
uh, human potential. So coming back to our theme, it's uh, never been more important that we think about ways to really focus on uh, inclusive economic recovery and doing this in a bold, transformative way uh, that will, I think, affect generations to come. I'm going to close by uh, just asking both of you, um, as you look to the future, what, what are you both most optimistic about? Andy, I'll start with you. What I'm really optimistic about is the idea that we're having these conversations, that we've, we've got numerous entities who have committed uh, significant resources to addressing the issue, uh, and we've elevated the discussion to the point where I think we now can start thinking about the steps, actual steps that we have to take to drive real change. And I think that is make is I think is really optimistic because before we were talking about it in kind of nice fuzzy phrases like inclusion and diversity, and now we're really talking about it in real words that matter: uh, equity, uh, systemic problems that you have to address, and that makes a difference. And so uh, I'm very optimistic that. Um, we are on the cutting edge of really making some change. Um, but I do, I think I, I what I you know, really know, it's hard. It is driving real fundamental change. And that's the concept behind, people need to understand when we talk about systemic. Systemic means that it's buried in the systems and you have to root it out and, and change the systems to make change. And that becomes challenging. So what I, my my Optimism is based on the fact that we're, we are, we've elevated the discussion. My concern is that we lose the moment and that um, because it will take um, hard work to drive real change. Thanks, Andy. Uh, Shelley, your thoughts. What are you optimistic about? I'm quite optimistic to the same point that Andy made, just that we've elevated this discussion. I've had tens of conversations, if not over 100, with uh, leadership teams across the private, public, and social sector on the topic. The, the articles that we've written and others have written have been widely covered by uh, mainstream media and have been quoted by politics. So everyone is, is, is starting to kind of coalesce around the problem statement. And, and you're seeing strong indications of people committing to changing the composition of their companies and committing real capital and time to help address these issues. And so that feels like something that we should be very proud of. But I think we have to also be very clear-eyed that we're still at the very beginning of the journey. And one of my biggest concerns, um, which I hope becomes something that we that that again can can drive more of a cohesive uh, more of a cohesive set of solutions is that there's a lot of siloed effort and a lot of people working on you know, pet projects or things that are interesting to them. I think that's great. I think with a problem of this magnitude, we do need more collective action. We, we like let's pick a few things as a broader set of stakeholders who care about this, and let's set a goal and let's move that forward and let's stage and sequence the things we want to work on the same way we would do if we were rolling out a strategy for our business. Whether it's we want to really move affordable housing or access to, 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 to home ownership, let's work as a, as a collection of 
private sector actors, philanthropists, and then the relevant government entities. Let's work together on that. Or business, uh, uh, fostering entrepreneurship and business ownership. Let's pick a few and let's really put the full collective weight behind those to ensure that we actually make some progress. That's terrific. Andy, Shelley, I'd like to thank both of you guys for joining us uh, for our podcast. I feel like we've covered a lot. Um, I asked you guys to join uh, because I know about the important work that you're leading, uh, but also because of the partnership that we have with uh, McKinsey and with Cleveland Avenue. And I know that working together, uh, Andy, to your point, we won't miss this moment. We will do more than just talk about it. We're going to take steps to really drive meaningful change. And so I look forward to continuing this discussion and hope to have you guys back again soon to talk about some of the work that you're continuing to lead. Uh, But thanks again for joining our discussion today, Empowering Inclusive Economic Recovery. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.